the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Paul is not in the picture right now. He's writing Timothy from some other place. He left him there at Ephesus. He went on to Macedonia, and he's writing Timothy, and he's, and he's away. But until he's able to return, Timothy is to give his attention to three things. Reading, exhortation, and teaching. That is his ministry. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve is guiding us through a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul was giving young Timothy some godly counsel that would help him and us as well to be good servants of Jesus. We've already seen several marks of a good servant and today Pastor Steve begins his fourth message in the series as we see how important it is to be devoted to our calling. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And without reading this chapter, let me say that the key phrase in this whole chapter and section of Scripture is found in verse 6. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A good servant or an excellent servant or a noble servant is the thought here. And what Paul does in this whole chapter specifically beginning at verse 6 and going on to the end of the chapter, is to point out to Timothy the marks of excellence in his ministry. And it's very important to us. In fact, it is serious business for us because not everyone who claims to be a servant of Christ is a good servant, is an excellent servant. There are those who lead in the church who are content with a spirit of mediocrity. There are those who lead in the church who are Uh, content just to get by rather than to excel. In fact, if they serve their employers with the same sort of substandard commitment that they serve the Lord, they would probably be fired before too long. But somehow we think that because we're not getting paid for it or because it's the church, then we can do that. But that's not right. And sometimes it's good for us to find out how others approach their work. Others who are in a false religious system approach their work Because by finding out their commitments, it ought to shame us and drive us and motivate us to deeper service. In the uh, recent edition of the Jerusalem Post, the week ending August 29th, 1987, there's an article there about a yeshiva in Israel. Now, a yeshiva is an equivalent of a seminary. In fact, that's what it would mean. It would mean a seminary, a postgraduate school where um, young men would study to be rabbis, or uh, should they want to, they can go into psychology or or teaching, but it's specifically designed to to, uh, train you to be a rabbi. And here's what the article said, and I only quote a little bit of it. The business of the yeshiva is the study of Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. And that is what goes on at Har 
Etzion for up to 18 hours a day, 43 weeks a year. The students rise at 6 a.m., and after morning service, they study until 1 p.m. Some take a two-hour lunch break, but then it is back to their desks until 7 p.m. The evening study session is theoretically until 10.30 p.m., but many students continue until past midnight. Now, notice I said some take a two-hour break, which means that some do not, and that many continue past midnight. They are up at 6 in the morning, and they are studying past midnight. Now, some might be thinking, a high, that they can't wait to get on vacation. Well, the article goes on to say this. There are some nine weeks of vacation a year, and you know what they do during their vacation? That's when the students go on hikes and field trips, getting to know the land of Israel. They spend their time studying even though it's recreation. Well, you might think, aha, suppose they're forced to work so hard. No. The rabbi says no one is compelled to do anything here. Students who can take the long hours tend to drop out naturally, but most of them seem to enjoy it. They say, what would a student say if he could speak here? That's one thing from a rabbi. What would the student say? Here's what one student said. No one stands over you. I would say that you you keep at it both because you are interested and so as not to let down your study partner. Another student observed this. It is enormously stimulating. When I miss a lesson or study session, I really feel a sense of being deprived. Now, put this in perspective. Here are men preparing to be leaders in a legalistic, non-Christian system. A system that, that does not know the Lord, though there is truth in it but it does not know Christ. And these people have a commitment to excellence that would drive them from from 6 in the morning till past midnight, every night, 43 weeks, a year, summertime, even studying, a spirit of commitment, of excellence, a zeal, though it be a zeal without true knowledge, and a desire to serve their system in the best way that they can. Now, that ought to shame us, and it ought to drive us and motivate us, because it is pitiful by comparison to have men serve Christ with a half-hearted devotion, a complaining spirit, an attitude that says, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see if we can do it. If Orthodox Jews have this kind of commitment to excellence in ministry, then think how much those who serve Christ ought to have. And I'm not speaking about those who are necessarily paid staff. I'm talking about anyone in leadership in the church. Now, that's why chapter 4 of of Timothy is so important to us, because Paul gives the marks and standards that ought to characterize everyone who serves Christ, and especially those who lead in some pastoral way. While I don't believe that Timothy was a pastor in the truest sense of the term, he did have a pastoral ministry. And while this primarily is addressed to those who would be pastors, it also applies to anyone who is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how to have a ministry of excellence. We ought not to accept mediocrity. We ought not to accept uh, substandard commitment. You don't settle for mediocrity, and that's what this whole chapter is all about. So we have already looked at a number of these marks. We have seen, for instance, that the first mark is he protects the flock, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren. What things? The things about heresy creeping into the church, the things about false teaching. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. An excellent servant, a ministry characterized by excellence, 
protects the flock. He lays down his life for the flock. He says things even though it may go against the grain. He warns people. He tells them about error. He, he dares to stand up to heresy in the church even if he uh, becomes unpopular. So he protects the flock. He points out about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He points out that there are men and women who are hypocrites and, and uh, Uh, Men and women who teach error, even though they may be popular. And so he protects the flock by that. Secondly, he feeds himself. Not only is he busy ministering and feeding the flock and protecting them, but he also takes care of himself. Verse 6 goes on to say, He's constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. says, Timothy, you have been letting your, your own life be nurtured with these words, and really your teaching and your feeding of the flock is simply an overflow of your own ministry, and that's the way it ought to be. There is no dichotomy. There is no professional man who, who studies over here, and, um, and what he studies is, is divorced from his own life. It ought to be the, the natural course of events to... Uh, to feed your own life, to be nourished on the words of the faith, and what you teach is the overflow of what's already been in your heart and mind. Thirdly, he avoids error. Verse 7 says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. The thought here is, Timothy, you are to feed yourself on, on sound doctrine, but you are to not be involved in feeding yourself on error. You refrain from it. You stay away from it. You, uh, you shun it. And that doesn't mean that we don't know error that's going on. Uh, that doesn't mean that we hibernate and we're not aware of error in our society and even in theological circles. It just means that you don't become an expert in error. It just means that this, this isn't your pastime to spend all your time arguing and debating with people about this. It means that, uh, that this isn't the thing that preoccupies your mind and your thinking and your ministry. But he is not saying that you don't know about error. Paul knew about error. John knew about error. Peter knew about error. How else could they refute error? But it just means you don't spend all of your time becoming an expert in error. You you don't let your mind be saturated with that kind of stuff and start doubting what you believe and the convictions that you have. The fourth mark is that he pursues godliness. On the other hand, Paul says in verse 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You are not to pursue error, but you are to pursue godliness. And then he goes on in verses 8, 9, and 10 to speak about about athletics as far as godliness is to be our way of life. We are to train uh, for, for godliness and discipline ourselves that way like an athlete trains for the arena. But he goes on to make a contrast and and he is telling us that godliness is so much more important than sports Because godliness pertains to this life, it affects you in this life and in the life to come. Sports only and athletics only affects you and that a little bit in this life. After this life, it is fini, it's over. In fact, after two weeks, you will uh, start getting out of shape. The fifth mark is he speaks with biblical authority. Verse 11 says this, prescribe and teach these things. In other words, keep commanding and teaching these things. Speak with authority. Order people about. Not not your own authority, but biblical authority. Speak with conviction. And yes, you have the right to tell people what to do based on the word of God. Keep ordering them, telling them what to do. But the problem is, especially when you're young, is that people don't want to take orders from a whippersnapper. So Paul says this, 
He says that a a true and uh, an excellent servant sets an example in verse 12. You don't get the respect from people because you boss them around. The thought here is not to dictate over them, but to speak with biblical authority. But, he says in verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. He sets an example. He lives a life that demands respect. There were people who were looking down on Timothy's youthfulness. Uh, He probably was in his late 30s, but in the Greek culture, that was still very young for a religious leader. And uh, Paul is saying, look, the way that you can handle this is you set an example so that your life shines and they'll respect you for your life. Now, tonight, we want to look at one more mark of an excellent servant, and that is he is devoted to his ministry. He's absorbed with it. He's devoted to it. He gives his attention to it. Verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Let me read how that should be translated literally in the Greek text. Until I come, give attention to the reading, to the exhortation, to the teaching. There's a definite article there. Paul is away. Paul is not in the picture right now. He's writing Timothy from some other place. He left him there at Ephesus. He went on to Macedonia, and he's writing Timothy, and he's, and he's away. But until he's able to return, Timothy is to give his attention to three things. Reading, exhortation, and teaching. That is his ministry. Timothy is to give these his attention. Now, the word attention means to devote yourself. I I just alluded to that. It's to give effort, to be absorbed in, to continually give your attention. It means a lifestyle. It is in the continuous present tense. Continually be devoted to these three things, Timothy. In fact, the same word is used in Hebrews 7.13, a priest who officiated at the altar. They were absorbed in it. That was their ministry. They They officiated there. In fact, the word officiated means to be devoted to. They were devoted to their ministry. It is also the Greek word that is used in Acts 16, verse 14. Remember Lydia, the first convert of Europe? The Bible says that she took heed to Paul's words. She opened her heart. She took heed to Paul's words. The word took heed is the same word here. Same word here. It means to pay attention. And she responded. So there is an attentiveness. That's the thought here. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, until... You get new orders from me personally. Be devoted to reading, to exhorting, and to teaching. Now, what do these three activities mean? Well, first of all, he says, be devoted to reading. He is not referring to to Timothy's personal reading habits. He is not speaking to him like a student. You would speak to a student and say, have you read your homework assignment? He's not doing that. This isn't homework for a school child, but this is a command for a Christian leader. That's why I stressed it is the Reading. The reading of what? The reading of Scripture. And he's not talking about Timothy's personal devotions either. He is talking about the public reading of the Word of God. The reading of Scripture. In the early church, part of the worship service was given over to the reading of a portion of Scripture. It was very important, especially... Uh, We have to keep in mind that uh, very few people had a copy of a scroll that had the Scriptures on it. They didn't have a printing press. And uh, there were not a whole lot of scrolls that went around. There was probably an official scroll in the, in the uh, synagogue or in the church. And then probably some people had the scrolls. 
but not many people had it. So it's important that God's word be read so that everyone could hear it. Now, we read the word of God today in the worship service, usually before a passage of scripture is read. And there are other churches who will read it uh, in, a, in a separate time. But it, is not quite, it does not quite have the significance in our day that it had in Paul's day because, for the most part, all of you have a copy of the Bible in front of you. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, remember we saw this a few weeks ago? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's a promise given to the one who stands up in a local church and he is the official public reader of the scriptures. The blessing is for him, the blessing is for those who hear. That's the thought here. Now, this custom of publicly reading the scriptures goes back, would go back all the way to the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is very, very significant, very important for us to understand. In Deuteronomy, all the way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31, perhaps the first time we get some kind of inclination about calling the people together to have the word of God read to them, is in this chapter. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11 says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men and the women and children and the alien, that would be the foreigners, not those who come from Mars, the foreigners who uh, the alien who is in your town, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the works of this law. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. As you go into the land of Canaan, remember this, Moses, that, that you must call the people together to read the word of God to them. You read the law to them. You call the people, they assemble, and you read the word to them. But I think probably the key passage that tells us that this, uh, uh, where this custom uh, took hold of the people and continued on into the church is found in Nehemiah chapter 8. You need to go a little bit further, and it might be uncharted waters for some of us, but Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and I'll just read parts of this. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Rather than even turn there, why don't you just listen? To, to, uh, to take the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I was reading all day to them. And uh, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which, he had made, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and I won't mention all these names, but verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Great reverence and respect for the word of God. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their face 
faces to the ground. And verse 8 says, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating it. Now, translating it means expounding it, explaining it. Does not mean just one language to another. Explaining it to give the sense that they understood the reading. The thought is this. Ezra stood up from a podium and he read from the law of Moses and he explained to the people what he was reading so that they understood what it was about. They heard it and he explained its meaning. That's the thought. Now this apparently took hold to the people because later, in the, later on in history, in the synagogue services, the law and the prophets were read. In fact, they're read even to this day. After which follows a sermon based on the portion of scripture just read. I don't know if that's always followed today. I know there's a sermon given. I don't know that it's always the case that today the sermon is based on what they read. But uh, there, there are titles for people uh, in the synagogue. The expositor is a member of the congregation who stood at a pulpit beside the reader and then delivered a short address from it. In other words, back then, there would be someone who's called the reader. He would read the passage, and there would be someone else, either to his left or right, who would, um, who would have a pulpit, and he then would explain, give a message based on what the reader just read. Let me give you some insight on this, because we have this illustrated in the, in the scriptures. We have this illustrated in the synagogue service of our Lord's day in the first century. They read the scripture and expounded it and explained it. Will you look at Luke chapter 4? This is, this is, I think this is thrilling to be able to go back into biblical history and see how it all comes together. In Luke chapter 4, and it will give you great insight into what was going on. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16, this is the time when Jesus came to Nazareth and went into the synagogue. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. He stood up to read, and then, the Bible says, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. That is, the scroll was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, and and uh, this is what it, what it said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendants and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And so forth. Now, this is very interesting. He stood up and that was the position that a rabbi would take to, to, uh, to read. The reader would take. He stood up to read, but then he sat down and sitting down was the normal position of a rabbi to teach. What Jesus did was he did a typical thing that, that took place in a synagogue. He stood up as the rabbi, he read, he sat down, now he was going to teach. And I believe that the Lord said more than what Luke has recorded for us. I don't think they would be marveling at all of his words if he just said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your, in your sight. Obviously, there is a lot that the Bible doesn't tell us. John said at the end of his gospel that all the books in the world couldn't hold that much information. So it seems that God just saved the parts he really wanted us to know. And even that's a lot to digest, isn't it? Thanks for tuning in today as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues his series of lessons from 1 Timothy chapter 4 about the marks of a good servant. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
You're always welcome if you're in the area and looking for a place to worship. To find out more, call Lakeside at 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. As we start to near the end of this study series, perhaps you'd like to go back again and listen to what has led us to this point. All of our broadcasts are free to download or stream from the message archives at versebyverseradio.org. And if you feel led to help support Verse by Verse, we make that safe and easy by means of the giving page. Or give by phone by calling Lakeside at 727-441-1714. We are grateful for your gifts and prayers. The website again is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Have you ever thought what it would be like if you could go back 2,000 years or even just 100 years? You would sure have to make a lot of adjustments, wouldn't you? And not just because of language. Even if language wasn't a barrier, think of the differences. Work, play, food, government, customs, social institutions, almost everything would be different. If I found myself dropped into that environment, I sure would want to have someone to help me understand what's going on and to adapt. Well, that's part of what a good preacher does. He explains, and then he does something else. He exhorts us to do what God said to do. It's easy for us to be complacent and just enjoy learning what's in the Bible. And it is fascinating, isn't it? But a good servant of God moves us to act on what he's helped us to understand. So next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will be sharing more about how a good pastor not only helps us understand the Scripture, but shows us how and why we need to apply it. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse. We're here to give you strength between... Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.